0: Hi, this is Lex, and welcome to the Fintech Blueprint. It's your podcast about fintech, decentralized finance, digital banking, investing, robo-advice, artificial intelligence, and all the other frontier technology that is transforming financial services. To get more content, like an illustrated transcript of this conversation, in your inbox, subscribe at fintechblueprint.com. So without further delay, let's jump into today's episode. Today's podcast is a collaboration with Consensus, the market-leading blockchain technology company. Given its core position in the Ethereum ecosystem, we're able to bring you the most captivating industry insiders, from technologists and entrepreneurs to designers and creatives from all around the world. So join us for inspiring conversations on the future of finance, crypto, and what is making up the new decentralized web. And with that, let's get into it. I'm really excited about our podcast today. Uh, we have with us Joe Lubin, who is the founder and CEO of Consensus and a co-founder of the Ethereum Project and generally a visionary for for our space. Joe, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Thanks for having me.
0: My pleasure. So you have a fascinating story and have touched a number of different frontier technologies over your career. I want to start at the very beginning and ask you about your your time at princeton and what what was your academic background kind of how how did your education come together
1: so that wasn't the very beginning but uh that was very early and uh, hundreds of years ago it feels but uh i was always on the uh sciencey tech side and uh, was a computer science slash engineering student and I studied electrical engineering, uh, but mostly computer science and ended up towards the end of my undergrad days uh, doing a bunch of AI. I did independent work and focused on what I thought was more symbolic or more boring, uh, symbolic AI. and uh, at that time, uh, something called connectionism, also known as neural nets. Uh, now known as deep learning, uh, began to get very popular again It TED that uh, had a winter. And so I was doing a ton of reading by junior or senior year in that field and uh, ended up uh, doing some work in that field for about a decade.
0: Deep learning has had an amazing renaissance in the last decade, right? With 2012, I think being a, a breakthrough year where machines were better able to understand something if it were if it were a cat or a dog better than people could by looking at a picture what was the state of the art for for this field when you were studying it like what was possible
1: so the field took on the name deep learning because it was extremely shallow learning uh, when i was doing it the architectures of the systems uh, were less sophisticated The algorithms for learning were a little bit less sophisticated, but those aspects weren't extremely different. We couldn't have deep learning in the sense of many, many layers of neural nets because we didn't have enough computational power. Uh, And so with uh, much less computational power and very little data compared to what's available today, there were only so many things that you could do. And so ultimately, we didn't intend to build toy systems, but ultimately they were like toy systems where, where there was just too little uh, sophistication possible at, at that time. Directionally, we were doing similar things to what goes on in, in deep learning.
0: Was it obvious that the infrastructure wasn't there yet to do the type of computation that was necessary? Or was it still, were people going in all sorts of directions, trying things and not knowing that a key, that a key hardware component was missing?
1: Yeah, it wasn't totally obvious. And there were, people were building hardware components. A company called SAIC would sell you a board. We built a robot with essentially GPU-like systems. And we were getting interesting results, but we weren't certain whether we just didn't have the uh, algorithmic understanding or whether we could just heap on more computational firepower and, and get there. And so uh, when deep learning needed its breakthroughs. I think it was pretty remarkable to people that, sort of like GPT-3, hey, you just throw enough data at a sufficiently sophisticated architecture and it can self-organize into something that looks intelligent or something that looks like it's really good at pattern matching to us.
0: Yeah, it's nice to have a robot that can read the whole internet. I linger on artificial intelligence because of its 50, 60 year history and I think there are many analogies to make to the evolution of the blockchain space and making sure the infrastructure is is in place. But before hopping into that, I know your career took you into traditional finance. Can you talk a little bit about what drove you there and then any observations about that experience and about the industry?
1: Nothing really drove me there. It was a bit of an accident. I, I was uh, about to take a job at a consulting firm, software consulting firm, and a headhunter just reached out and asked me if I wanted to go interview at Goldman Sachs and I was at a moment in my life where I was interested in exploring things that I swore I would never do uh, or didn't think I would ever do and so I went and the people were very cool and the opportunity was interesting and uh, I learned a lot about big corporations and A little bit about finance at
0: that point from which vantage point did you look at what happened in 2008 and that i think uh, it's a core foundational moment for the blockchain industry for the fintech industry how did you look at financial companies and what they were doing and sort of what was your perspective that motivated some of the work that ended up being so important to everybody with ethereum and consensus
1: Yeah. So working at Goldman caused me to start paying attention to business aspects of of the organizations that I was related to or or involved with and finance on a national or international scale, geopolitics. Uh, And so we got to around 2,000 I uh, was more squarely in the financial industry, so building trading systems, I uh, ran a hedge fund with a partner, and I began to get increasingly disturbed at, uh, at the state of the financial industry and call it the stability of the global economy, where it was clear that uh, more and more debt was getting piled up, far more, more debt than could be paid off by normal issuance of money. And so it felt to me like we would basically, if you think of it in terms of called debt super cycles, it looked like we were at the end of a 70-year debt super cycle. And those super cycles generally don't end well for lots of people. They end well for certain people if you're well-prepared, but uh, they bring about change or they force paradigm shifts. And what I thought was happening was that we were getting close to the end of the viability of the monetary regimes that, that we were living under. Japan was uh, was already in quantitative easing. Uh, that would soon happen in the United States, and it felt like malinvestment from too much money creation <laughs> would cause uh, sort of doldrums. And I was uh, not enthusiastic about how things would evolve for, say, normal people. And bottom line, it, it was the architecture I think of that system that enables things like super cycles, where it's not a user-centric system and structural difficulties in in how money was created and how money was spent, uh, I believe leads us into certain difficulties occasionally. And it should be said that the financial system as it stood and as it stands has done remarkable things. So it's uh, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying that we can do better.
0: Absolutely. I mean, we're we're 10 years or 15 years from that moment, and there's now the invention of the quote-unquote modern monetary theory where putting $3 trillion or $1.5 trillion into sort of like a... It's not even a Keynesian spend cycle because under Keynes, there's still something to balance. There's still the taxes to back yep. the money, whereas in the current political economy... The idea is that just money is the state and the state is money and therefore everything's fine. Do you feel like now the system is even more stretched than before? Like, has it gone the way that you thought about?
1: Yeah, the system is is broken. It's in its death throes, uh, from what I can tell. For a long time, you had... Pretty responsible management of fractional reserve banking and turning on and turning off of the central bank money gets, But as debt accumulates, you end up getting paying more and more in interest and you give time to well-resourced actors to take control of the system and the system is vulnerable because it's centralized. And so the system could work for a very long time if humans weren't totally in charge and... Uh, susceptible to being influenced Uh, so when you have politicians in the loop in the central banking loop then you you tend to uh, see money creation to pay off essentially political donors and you get much less money destruction Uh, so when the economy is good you should be saving for a rainy day continuing to spend or or continuing to create new money. So so there should be growth in the economy, but there's a there should be a symmetry between uh, turning the spigots on and turning them off or removing money from the system. And uh, we haven't seen that. As a result, central banks have lost their traditional means of managing the money supply and managing growth in the economy. And so they then, instead of just wielding or, or Being able to manipulate the money supply through setting interest rates, uh, they've had to move to quantitative easing and, and buying. All sorts of different securities. Uh, so it's a it's a highly centrally managed and improperly manipulated economy at this point. Just to put band-aids on issues and keep things going until the next uh, regime reveals itself.
0: Uh, some easy topics.
1: And, and thank and thank you to the central bankers. They're doing a <laughs> a wonderful job, really, in in managing. Yeah. The death throes of the super, cycle. the super cycle is in hospice care right now, and I hope they're able to keep kicking the can down the road for a while while we in our ecosystem uh, try to smooth out some of the sharp edges of what we're building.
0: Kind of two threads I want to pick up on from there. The first is the collapse of trust in the system and especially like institutional trust, even more so for generations that are digitally native. And I think I kind of want to pin that idea. And then the second one is we are going from a world of humans to a world of robots and largely we're there already. And it's interesting to think about whether you're going to have you should have humans in charge of robots the way that you do with the Google or Facebook and the outcomes that we see, or whether you want to have robots, not in charge of humans, but robots as a public good on which humans can be creative. And so with these two two threads of sort of like the role of technology as it relates to the individual, and then the collapse of institutional trust and the looking around for another source of that trust, take us to... First, the founding of Ethereum, your involvement in that, and some of the early days for the protocol launch as well.
1: It was a lot to unpack there. I don't see it as starkly as a world of humans versus a world of robots. Uh, I think uh, we live in a world of humans. We will continue to live in a world of humans. Uh, It is possible that the definition of human or person evolve and fork in different ways, potentially. But I don't subscribe to the thesis that there will be a singularity where artificial general intelligence sets up a feedback loop for itself and gets so enormously intelligent that it wipes out or causes damage to the human species uh, i feel like we're going to evolve uh, as hybrid with uh, machine intelligence anyway that probably could go deep down that rabbit hole if agi does evolve rapidly it'll probably evolve out of our ecological mission and won't be a problem for us but i really do think the machines will many of them at least will I think they need to be in service of people, and people will benefit tremendously from that. They don't have to flip burgers or drive their own cars. How primitive!
0: Yeah, all all my best friends are robots. <laughs> it's it's true.
1: So I can jump to uh, to the Ethereum launch. So the token launch specifically happened eight or so months into the project took a lot of legal work and by its delay created a lot of stress amongst the team who were many of whom were were living on fumes basically but but still really dedicated and and we still largely wanted to stick with it and do it right so that we would have paperwork in our pockets from lawyers that were very respected that indicated in their opinion that we wouldn't be selling an unregistered security to Americans. And so that was the main issue uh, satisfying American securities law because we felt that that would be acceptable around the world. And so with that diligence done by ourselves and potential defense in our pockets, uh, we launched in August, I believe, ran a token launch for 42 days where we traded a digital commodity for another digital commodity, Ether, for Bitcoin, and uh, raised a bunch of US dollar equivalent around $18 million and built Ethereum one uh, with the value of that commodity.
0: So, just the basic question of, you know, what is Ethereum for? And I know, I know, you talk about it as a, a trust foundation for the world. Like, how do you think about the function the protocol plays? Yeah, you know, certainly for the stuff going on today, but also going forward in the future, what does it mean to to be that foundation? And how does it work?
1: So, back to first principles, really. We um, we're living in a world, and we continue to live in a world that's not very user centric. We live in in that world because for millennia, Uh, That's the way our societies evolved in many respects where the societal rule systems were top-down command and control, hierarchical. And that has produced tremendous advancements in society. It also sets things up so that they're very capturable. Uh, So they're captured by genealogical lineages in monarchies. They're capturable by well-resourced actors uh, in financial and political systems. And that's simply because you can see the target to capture. And you can construct uh, strategies to do that. If the target is everywhere and nowhere, then it's harder to capture. And so that was the idea behind behind Bitcoin. That was the idea uh, that the rest of the industry has built on, that we can create a robust system and ensure that it is decentralized in so many aspects of its architecture and create Something that is both robust to damage, but also robust to capture, and from that you can build something that is a breakthrough with respect to to trust. Uh, so you can build a system out of decentralized components that comes to an agreement, say every ten minutes for Bitcoin, every fifteen seconds for Ethereum, about exactly what happened in the system and when it happened. It makes it enormously economically expensive to rewrite that history. So that's the new trust foundation that, that you hinted at and that we're all working towards buildings already in place uh in bitcoin and in ethereum but it it needs to grow much bigger much more decentralized much more usable much more scalable and ethereum is the most expressive most programmable example of that new trust foundation And if you have a new trust foundation you can build something that's essential to building applications in societies which is financial infrastructure and that's getting done right now development of DeFi and that's uh, spectacularly exciting lexa I strongly suggest that you look into it. I think you'd really resonate with that space. (laughs) And uh, on on top of that, uh, it basically enables us to re-architect everything.
0: I think I should definitely do some DeFi research.
1: That's a good idea.
0: So it really is this massive step function. And I know in the past, you've also talked about how it removes, it essentially removes transaction costs. It takes out contracting, property rights, transaction costs in the real world. And of course, it has its own transaction costs, but the, the friction... It's machine friction rather than sort of meat space friction. And, mm-hmm. and it is this kind of unfolding fractal. And so, as this fractal is unfolding, you also founded consensus. Uh, and sort of like there's a, there's a story of consensus from the venture studio to the solutions and services and the enterprise Ethereum story, and now to the product company. Can you take us a little bit through kind of how you thought about why Ethereum needs the consensus? bootstrap it and then how you think about the evolution of the company forward through these different phases
1: yeah so after a year on the before the end of the the first year uh, on the ethereum project i started thinking that forming an organization that could help scale the ethereum platform and ecosystem made sense there we, we kind of avoided the united states and i i had lived in the united states for a big chunk of my adult life and uh i was less scared of the United States than others on the project were. Uh, The United States did have a tendency to not look kindly upon people who built their own money systems. And so there's a a good reason why we located the project in in Switzerland. But uh, I I felt that, hey, we're just building software, uh, shouldn't be a problem. And I wanted to be one of the vectors for activating people in the United States. The internet was largely constructed in the United States, uh, Web 1 and Web 2, as we know it. And uh, there's obviously a ton of talent and a big economy that, that I believe we could benefit from and could benefit from decentralized programs. Technology. So basically set out to gather philosophically aligned, talented technologists and entrepreneurs and ended up attracting a bunch of social warriors as well. And there was no interest in trying to top down architect the next generation economy. That wasn't Viable. And we didn't even know how to build decentralized applications back then. We didn't even know whether wrapping companies around decentralized applications could work because people felt that, hey, the code's out there. You can just fork it and lower your margin and outcompete the people who actually built the system. And I didn't believe that thesis because, in general, just because uh, there's so much more to a company than the software that, that they've built. offer. I did believe it uh, for certain things like gambling systems, where we didn't have customer support uh, on one of those systems. And, and it turns out that vampire attacks and, and other approaches have validated that thesis to some degree, but still it is uh, more than viable to build a company. We did demonstrate that Built several companies on blockchain technology. And so we uh, essentially did our best to explore the solution space. We were early uh, and so many different kinds of organizations approached us to help them understand blockchain and Ethereum. And we evolved that into a professional services group that did advisory and built proofs of concept and has, uh, over the years, built some very significant production systems. And we always intended to be a software product company. Early on, the technology wasn't very mature and, and therefore products were, were not very mature. Uh, we're now at a point where products, uh, several of our products and several of our companies have uh, have seen real traction and found significant product market fit, and we've actually seen several of our products dominate their niches and coalesce into a blockchain stack that is uh, heavily used in our ecosystem.
0: So, I wanna—I have so many questions and so little time. I want to ask, you mentioned the word social warriors, and I want to ask first like this philosophical question about that first iteration of consensus and the many projects that that were being seeded at the time. And one of the things that I still, you know, is super exciting and is hard to wrap around is the crypto community politically is so... Diverse. Like there are deep libertarians who are there for the protection of their data and their finances and to be separate from the state and, you know, short the Fed. And then there are people who are, you know, into the collectivism of the movement, into the mutualization of infrastructure and the composability of open source. You know, like the driving thing about open source is that you give, you give to the collective and the collective and sort of like this decentralized organization, autonomous or not is is a mutual good and then you have hyper capitalists who are you know just there to trade in early markets and to be on the frontier to to find an edge and everybody is kind of participating and aligned almost despite having political positions that feel so so different. And that really sticks out to me because if you look at the politics of our nation states, they're a clear mess and they are super separated to the sides. Like There's so little overlap. And yet here in this ecosystem, you have people who I would think have deeply different views, but they're all playing and building together. Now, how do you think about this? Is this just like what being a cypherpunk is? Or what's your view on this um, diversity? So
1: early on in our ecosystem, when we went to meetups, some of us noticed that the anarchists and the libertarians and more collectively focused groups called them socialists, uh, all pretty much claimed the technology as their own or all resonated very strongly with the technology, and I guess Marx indicated that collectivism would likely evolve out of capitalism, uh, or maybe that's a natural instinct. And for two reasons, I see synergy politically and philosophically in the uh, the different approaches in in our technology. And one is that you can. Different components and create free markets, and we've never really on on this planet uh, had really good or unfettered uh, free market capitalism. And and you can set up those systems as protocols with with well known rules, and those systems can operate, can attract. Uh, different actors in different roles and can operate very efficiently. And you can bring those systems into service of a of a collective of humans or a collective of intelligences uh, that also operate according to a protocol. And essentially, you have free market dynamics undergirding a system that pays attention to collective well-being. And the other dimension is that our systems are so inefficient because they're organized in meat space. Uh, They're analog systems. They have lots of frictions and delays. They use centralized databases, which uh, require reconciliation. It's the friction that you were speaking or lots of different forms of friction that you were speaking about earlier. And as a result, we have to build these big clunky systems that don't serve the bulk of humanity very well. So they maybe serve, and uh, not just the economy, but different kinds of systems, serve. that call it 1% decently and uh, and don't represent uh, the 99% all that well. What we can do uh, with natively digital technology based on decentralized protocols is, is build much more granularity into our systems so that uh, systems are easier to define and erect and operate. And we don't really need these big structures like multinational corporations and governments to take care of our needs when we can simply organize on the internet a new structure with its own governance and its own ability to issue money and raise money and set its goals and execute its goals. Uh, Lots of organizations are being formed today, especially in our ecosystem by people who have never met one another in meat space. And when they do get together, it's uh, it's exciting because they've worked together for a year or, or longer uh, with only a uh, two-dimensional and audio uh, understanding of each other. Uh, so I you know somebody's going to, there will be a field that emerges talking about the merging of different political and economic philosophies, I think, and think they were all right. Uh, and we, we will demonstrate how they can all be right and how they can all be complementary in a more comprehensive system.
0: It's it's really inspirational stuff and, and it's it's cool to be on that journey. One of the things that that you um, alluded to is the place of the of the international corporation and I think adjacent to that is the banking system. Uh, and consensus has spent a lot of time working with the banking system you know one of one of the core investors is jp morgan consensus quorum is the enterprise ethereum protocol that's provided for payments use cases for card network use cases and many others and at the same time there is this inherent contradiction of upgrading to a next-gen infrastructure or, more broadly, just a, an economy that's digital first. How about two-parter here around institutions? And the first is, as you think about consensus projects like ComGo or Covantis or the CBDC pilots that the company's working on, you know, like which which ones stick out to you as really meaningful or maybe memorable for, for the future and, and for these institutions? And then the second part of that is, you know, how does decentralization mesh with the banking world? Like, how does it, what does the coexistence look like?
1: The original interest in enterprise around blockchain technology was setting up collaboration networks, essentially bringing the trust characteristic more tangibly, more mechanistically into collaboration systems. Uh, We are in favor of maximally decentralized systems for many important things, things where there is high value like issuing a cryptocurrency or other kinds of digital assets. Um, But bringing some decentralization to all sorts of systems uh, brings just more, more trust into those systems. And so we hear much Less complaint uh, about consortium blockchain systems, uh, that they're not pure enough these days. But early on, uh, it was sort of a religious war. So we've seen uh, J.P. Morgan themselves and and many other uh, organizations who have been competing and collaborating with other organizations around the world for a long time. Embrace this new technology because there are things that either they can all do together that aren't competitive advantages, and uh, and they should share those costs, and they they should build a better trust foundation for them to transact. Uh, with each other and essentially squeeze delays and frictions of their systems by having a single shared uh, source of truth, a single shared database on which to to run business processes. So that was uh, an obvious early use case, and, and we'll still see a bunch of that being built. What needs to happen is the, the cost of running those networks, the cost of running nodes on those networks, needs to drop and uh, will be seen through as a service offerings where you can spin up uh, your own node and connect to an existing network or spin up an entire network, we'll see that get uh, very cost effective over time. Ethereum mainnet has its own special value and characteristics and both cryptocurrencies, I expect, uh, will be increasingly adopted and the use of mainnet by corporations uh, is going to get very busy over the next few years. Uh, we still need more Layer two scalability brought to Ethereum. We're already seeing thousands of transactions per second coming online, probably gonna end up turning into a torrent. new transactional throughput as we move into summer. And so with that available and with Ethereum 2 coming available, we're going to see lots of organizations build systems through different kinds of approaches that touch on mainnet. Uh, So they'll do that through protocols like Baseline that enables organizations to sync up their data agreements and business processes via zero-knowledge proofs without any of their sensitive data being exposed to mainnet and protocols like Baseline and just other approaches will make use of decentralized finance. Uh, So decentralized finance is a next generation financial infrastructure that is democratizing the building and usage of financial protocols. And it will enable people to have greater agency over their financial needs and situation. And it will enable organizations, small and large, to construct their own financial instruments and wire up financial flows in sort of self-service way without uh, much need. For intermediaries and the reason organizations are going to avail themselves of that is uh, just better user experience and also liquidity. Uh, we're seeing money moving into these systems really rapidly. It's, uh, it's still very early days in the advent of a new technology but where the money is is where the attention will be and uh, we'll, we'll see lots of organizations making use of newfound capabilities and, and available capital and available yield actually in zero interest rates negative interest rates and in environments as uh, capital gets debased around the world uh
0: where the money is is where the
1: or cur- cur- currencies get debased yeah
0: Okay. As you're saying, where the money is, is where the attention is and vice versa, you know, today where the attention is, is where the money comes. And we've got Mark Cuban and Gary Vee and Elon Musk and Grimes and, you know, the long tail of artists and influencers building digital artwork on Ethereum, we have financiers building new types of software applications and um, it's just a, such a fantastic moment. I know're we're, we're out of time, but I just want to bring it back to your early studying of artificial intelligence and, and neural networks. And sometimes you know that the technology is exactly the right answer. And then there's a time it takes for the rails and consumer adoption and all of these pieces to kind of click together and catch up and the pace of that happening in crypto is is truly incredible especially as you mentioned with the layer twos being turned on not in a few months but today to to be able to absorb the amount of activity that we're seeing both in in DeFi and nft but i'd love to have a part two of this conversation but we've got to wrap up thank you joe so much for being on the podcast
1: well cool. thanks lex
0: my pleasure <laughs> Hi, everyone. That's it for this week's episode of the fintech blueprint. For more technical deep dives into all things fintech and decentralized finance, check out fintechblueprint.com and grab a free subscription to the newsletter. This is Lex, and I'll see you next time.